0: on this episode of China Unscripted, is Australia about to have a China reset? China's trying to dominate global biotech. and how the West can beat China at its own game. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganeshda. And joining us today is former Australia China Council scholar, Andrew Phelan. Andrew, it's great to have you on the podcast.
1: It's great to be with you guys. I've been a fan, as you know, for a long time, and I feel like I'm hanging with some old friends here.
0: Hanging. How Australian colloquial. <laughs> Very nice. Did you say that? Uh, no, hanging is something. <laughs> we, we don't say that in America, right? I'm gaslighting him. Okay.
2: Just like old friends.
0: Just like old friends. Right. <laughs> yeah,
2: absolutely.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, there's been a lot of uh, really really big uh china news lately but uh, you know we're mm. not going to talk about any of that because the real story is andrew amber heard and johnny no, depp's Matt. trial no, is Chris, like, no no no. i mean this this right guys this is what we want to
3: talk about
1: well the, the china news is always getting crowded out by you know megan markle or johnny depp or whatever it is you know the news news to jewa yeah well, so which
3: which is why our politicians don't actually do very much on china because <laughs> they're too busy following like the johnny depp trial uh, well hey <laughs> right.
0: speaking of politicians there were elections in Australia recently, and there's there's been some big changes. Uh, why don't you tell us what happened? Like, how is this going to affect Australia's China policy?
1: Okay, so just for an audience outside of Australia, uh, Team Blue is the Liberals, uh, who are the equivalent of the Republicans in the U.S., and Team Red, are the Labor Party, the equivalent of the Democrats. So the uh, the colors exactly. are swapped over. Oh. Just
0: remember, it's Australia. It's upside down.
1: <laughs> so now, just to confuse everyone, right, right yeah. from the get go. So uh, the Labor Party, who have not been in power federally for nine years, won the election and secured a majority, 76 seats. Uh, The election was a disaster for the government, which is a coalition of two parties, the Liberal Party and the National Party, the LNP Coalition. Um, And some seats were picked up by a group of so-called independents, whose nickname has become the Teals because of their teal colour, um, who have been financed by Simon Holmes a Court, who's the son of Australia's first billionaire, who's a re- resources uh, billionaire, the late Rupert Holmes a Court. And so the question was, were they genuine independents, or were they, did they have some kind of um, group, some you know maybe informal or um, affiliation? And they've been very controversial because the government lost some what were considered safe blue ribbon liberal seats. Um so that's been a watershed in terms of uh, this particular election.
3: And so one of the, the, the differences between with uh, Australian politics in the U.S. is that in Australia, like any parliamentary system, the the new prime minister is the head of the majority party. So they immediately s- uh, switched prime ministers, uh, who's now the head of the Labour Party.
1: Now, he was, he, he was already the leader of the Labour Party. So we don't have primaries. Like you do in the us where you know the candidates fight it out and then you get you know whoever emerges the winner leads his party into the election doesn't work like that here so for example the liberal national coalition who just lost the election have already chosen their leader the leader of the opposition who unless anything unless there's a coup um he will lead the LNP into the next election
2: so but it's so it's not scott morrison anymore right
3: but that's what i mean like like because because you guys don't have a president who's elected separately your equivalent of a president is the prime minister, but yeah. like he or she is just whoever is the person who's the head of the majority party.
1: Correct. Yeah. yeah. And yes, yeah, so you're right, Shelley. Scott Morrison, uh, you know, did the captain's thing and uh, resigned as leader of the opposition immediately as results were coming in and they come in very quickly. Um, so he'll see he won his local seat. So he'll stay in parliament as a backbencher. You know, for the time being, I think he, he you know, accepted responsibility for the defeat. Um, and I think we lost some really good people that lost their seats. My local member here, Tim Wilson, and uh, just full disclosure, I probably voted Labor most of my life, um, but I'm a member of the Liberal Party, I should point out, and um, have been quite involved in meeting some government ministers and senators and so forth over the last few years, including actually, uh, in, including on, on the topic of China, but I've also been involved in um, reaching out to the other side of the aisle as well. And I've met, you know, when I came back to Australia in 2015-16, Michael Danby, who was a federal member uh, for a large seat here in Melbourne, who's been very active in terms of, you know, the Uyghur cause, the Tibetan cause. In fact, I sat next to Michael uh, a couple of weeks ago when I was invited by the Victorian Council of Uyghurs to the to their um, end of Ramadan celebrations. Um... So it was an issue on both sides of the aisle. You know, the the concern about uh, China has been um, a a bipartisan issue largely, but there have been some differences. And there was a lot of questions being asked during the election campaign about how the Labor Party, if they won, would handle the relationship with China. Mm -hmm.
2: And what do you think about uh, how they're handling the relationship with China?
1: Yeah. Um, so just before the election, there was a series of articles written about uh, Richard Miles, who is now the deputy prime minister and also the um, defence secretary or the minister in charge of defence. And he bobbed up in a bunch of articles because he'd been meeting with uh, the Chinese embassy unofficially, kind of, um, you know, as they say in China, it's all you know, to go go by the back, back door, as it were, in a kind of Kissingerian sort of style um, you know, with a view to keeping the lines of communication open and so forth. But, you know, he did a trip to China a couple of years ago that was funded by a somewhat controversial think tank in Canberra called China Matters. And China Matters, um, uh, what my friend Rowan Callick, who did two tours of China with The Australian as a journalist, he's a, he's a great writer and knows China well, he's, he's what uh, Rowan refers to as the Engaginistas, you know, in in that they always make the case you must continue to engage with China. Anyway, Miles came back from that trip a couple of years ago, went on TV the next morning, and seemed to regurgitate uh, CCP talking points, you know, as if they'd planted a subcutaneous chip inside of him. I couldn't believe it. I was floored by what he was saying, you know. There was the usual stuff like, um, well, you know, the CCP deserves credit for... Uh, lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, that type of thing. But it went further than that. He um, he made a speech uh, in while well, on his trip and he forwarded that speech to the Chinese embassy in Canberra, to, you know, to to see if it was okay before he gave it. Um, so he copped a lot of criticism for that. And one of the things I did, I sat down with, I had a cup of coffee with um, Senator James Patterson, uh, emerging really, really smart guy, Um In terms, you know, because he and Andrew Hastie, who was the uh, deputy defense minister in the outgoing administration, he was also an SAS soldier in Afghanistan. Uh, Those two politicians and another guy from the Labor Party were supposed to go to China, uh, sponsored and funded by China Matters. They were supposed to go next. So I had a cup of coffee with James and he wants to know kind of do's and don'ts and what my thoughts were. So like
3: don't go to China was the don't.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, he 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 was he he and Hasty were of the position. Um, we're not going to go if everything's orchestrated, preordained, scripted. And one of the things I said to him was, if you've got a veto power over the itinerary and all that sort of stuff, and the freedom to say what you want and, and all that, go. You know. Um, but uh, you know, I said the way Miles has, has uh, gone about it is not what I would. It's the opposite of what I would do. You know just kind of falling into line and and taking the tour as it was orchestrated by others and it turned out that uh, senator patterson and um, andrew hasty were, were both the following week were both denied visas so they ended up not going at all so yeah well you, know. you,
3: you got to be like michelle bachelet the un human rights uh person who who had her fully orchestrated tour of xinjiang and discovered that you know what China did lift 100 million
1: people out of poverty.
2: <laughs> oh, you know whatever Or 100s. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: I mean, we couldn't we couldn't have seen that coming, could we?
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, so the person, I just want to be clear, the person that you said uh, took this orchestrated tour of China and came back regurgitating like that propaganda, he's the current defense minister?
1: He he was sworn in a few days ago as the new defense minister. Now, I've ne- I've never met him, um Um, Michael invited me to his retirement dinner and I would have uh, sat right next to him, but I ended up not going because my mum was ill, but um, I haven't met him. So the line I take on that stuff is to give people the benefit of the doubt because we have politicians that um, have done sponsored China trips, maybe as recently as five years ago, that have kind of woken up to what's going on, you know, and they're saying, for example, the leader of the opposition in the state of New South Wales, Chris Minns, who's from the Labor Party, said you know um i've learned from that experience and i would um you know behave differently today i probably wouldn't have taken the tour so i think people deserve credit for that we can't expect the broader community to have the the same perspective and the same experience on china as as us china nerds have you know uh, so I think we need to have a, allow people a little bit of leeway and a bit of forgiveness to a point.
0: Well, I think definitely the the whole uh, trade war essentially like woke up a lot of people in Australia to the threat of the Chinese Communist Party. But I'm wondering like with this new uh, administration in, like, is this going to be a situation where uh, they're they're going to seek a reset? They're going to yeah, try and go back. Yeah, there's been a back. lot
2: of. There seems to have been a lot of. You know, I saw an article in the China Daily yesterday, like the propaganda paper about how, you know, it's time for Australia-China relations to have a reset. And time it for seems... Australia to cave yeah. to us. <laughs> well, I mean, even within Australian media, right, there's been a lot of, before the election, like a lot of like speculation about will labor do a reset of the China policy? Do you think that all this reset talk is having any kind of effect?
1: I think it's a classic case of... Um... You know, China influence at play here. So we have a new ambassador, um, and the outgoing one left in a the, you know pretty sour relationship. The new guy is is you know by, old, uh, by his reputation very sophisticated, urbane, speaks about five languages, and he's been civil, civil, almost friendly. Um, so he hasn't been behaving like a wolf warrior, and so the mainstream media has interpreted that as he's offering an olive branch. And I don't see it that way at all. And the reason I come to that conclusion is um, the comments in his speech. You know, he used the phrase, uh, change is not seen in a hundred years, which is sometimes, um, sometimes phrases, uh, sorry, um, change is not seen in hundreds of years. And that's one of Xi Jinping's uh, favourite phrases. If you read Rushdoshi's book, The Long Game, he refers to that quite a lot. And what that phrase means essentially is, hey, you know what, it's the end of your time in the sun, Western world, our time has come, you know. So I don't see underneath um, a more friendly exterior, I don't see anything that's changed. And as somebody who's sat around the negotiating table in what I like to call the trenches of commerce in China um, and done business there for a long time and, and know how, you know, to Chinese negotiate, he's not giving anything up at all. So if I was advising the new administration, I'd be saying, don't fall for it, you know, stay the course. And so far, I would give, as I said on Sky News the other day, I would give um, Penny Wong, the new foreign minister, and Anthony Albanese, the new prime minister, I would give them pretty high marks for maintaining the line. It's almost been a a seamless transition in terms of um, the stance that they're taking on China. Now, early days, they're only one week into... Into government, uh, we'll see. They're going to be tested. And what's happening, you mentioned that letter, Shelley. That came from a bunch of, you know, concerned scholars. And most of the people that signed that letter, you know, I know, and they're definitely part of the engage in Easter camp. You know, you must uh, do business to China, you must deal with China, blah, blah, blah. They don't mention China's grand strategy, what it's doing, how it's manifested in the region. And I think the Solomon Islands and um Somebody sent me the draft agreement uh, that the day it came out, and I, I stayed up that night looking at a bunch of things. A year ago, I went on Sky with with uh, Chris Smith and talked about the Solomons. And I realised how important, what it, uh, it's, you know, geographically and strategically, the Solomons is, as are other states in the Pacific, but particularly the Solomons. And you guys did a show, you did a bit of stuff from the Philippines, right? And you were in Manila. Did you ever go to the US uh, War Cemetery? in Bonifacio Global City when you were there? No, we didn't. No. Okay, well if you, if you get back there, I highly recommend you go because it's the largest uh War sem- US War cemetery in the world outside of the ones in the US of course. Um there's about 5 or 6,000 crucifixes in that cemetery on on a on a uh, sea of grass and you know the odd star of david. And in the middle of the cemetery There's these murals depicting all the battles of of the Pacific War, you know, Leyte, Milne Bay, Kokoda, the Solomon Islands, Guadalcanal, Coral Sea. And what you realise when you look at those um, murals is that the nexus, the logistical nexus between the US Navy and Australia was critical to to the war efforts in terms of supplying troops with food and fuel and stuff out of Queensland Um, and also transporting from Hawaii and Guam, uh, you know, closer to that part of the Pacific, which is obviously vast, you realise how critical that was. And China's play um, around the Solomons is to be in a position where, if it wanted to, it could have PLAN vessels rock up uh, in that part of the world and potentially interdict uh, the, the the cooperation between the Australian Navy and our you know, mutual defense treaty ally, the U.S. So it's incredibly significant. I think I think it's got a lot of people. It's certainly got mainstream media attention and mainstream attention like China and these issues have never had before.
0: Well, how do you think the new government is weighing relations with the U.S. versus relationships with China? I mean, the first thing uh, the new prime minister did was go to a quad meeting.
1: Yeah, well, even before that, he was asked in a press conference about the reset and what he would do. And he said, the first country I'll be reaching out to is the United States. So that was a huge relief for me to hear that. Um, he so far hasn't budged. I don't think he's been sucked in by the whole reset conversation. But even today, one of the universities here in um, in Melbourne, La Trobe University, and um, Dr Ewan Graham, who's at CSIS in Singapore, uh, is a friend of mine. He used to run that. Um, and, there was you know, there was quite a few healthy debates. So there was one, for example, between Clive Hamilton, who you guys know, and uh, Professor Hugh White, who's a military strategist. Um, and I thought that was very healthy. But since Ewan's left, I've seen... Um, La Trobe Asia seems to be having these panels where everybody already has the same view. Uh, and it's, you know, we must re-engage. You know, I, out on Twitter today, they're inviting people to an event all about should we reset? And, of course, if you look at um, the way that event is... Uh, portrayed you know it's uh you know australia's rhetoric we could have managed it better and so on and so forth so australia's the bad guy you know we need to use diplomacy hold
3: on so so the last two years uh has been a time when after the australian government just like called for an investigation into the origin of the coronavirus without actually accusing china the Chinese Communist Party launched a trade war that hit Australia extremely hard.
2: Remember the right? fourteen points that Australia had to like do better. R- yeah, right. And, and
3: then it, they call them the so white trash of uh, among, Pacific, among other yeah.
1: things. So, uh, crybaby nation, uh, chewing gum on the shoe. Yeah.
3: <laughs> so, so, so,
1: so, th- so, it's, 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 our, our rhetoric is the problem. Yeah, yeah. So
3: I, but I don't understand this. So it's like, okay, for two years the Chinese Communist Party has had this trade war that they launched against Australia. Like, are we seeing this reset? Is this amnesia? Or is this like... Yeah, what <laughs>
0: is like, like, going on? Like, wh- what world what? is this? Yes. What? Hello, What's happening? You
1: know, <laughs> exactly. Well, it, it, things started to go south um, when Malcolm Turnbull was prime minister because he made the decision to bar... And he was pretty tech-savvy for a prime minister. You know, he was an early investor in an internet company. He did very well out of that. And um, you know, after studying this, they decided uh, to ban Huawei from Australia's 5G network. And of course, Australia was the first country to do that, set the precedent, kind of showed the way. And since then, you know, the US has barred uh, Huawei, then the UK, who had already, was already quite advanced in their discussions with Huawei. And then finally, you know, a couple of weeks ago, Canada. So Australia's done incredibly well out of China's rise. You know, they've been a huge, they've had a huge appetite for our commodities and they've kind of unrooted our wealth for the last couple of decades. And I think um, certainly Xi Jinping would, be think, would have been thinking, you know, you've done really well out of us. You're one of the few countries that has a trade surplus with us. You know, you kind of owe us one, you know, and you should fall into line a little bit because, you know, the relationship economically has been so good for you, you know, but um, we're a treaty ally with the U.S., And I think, you know, as Mearsheimer might say, you uh, choose your security over your prosperity every time. And so I think the banning of of Huawei was a huge, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, decision in terms of the impact it had on the relationship. And why is that? Because I think Huawei, you know, I had friends that worked in, um, one of my mates, um, uh, you know, um, one of my American friends uh, worked for Cisco um in, in in ip you know he used to travel up to china all the time from singapore um you know they've been pilfering stuff from uh cisco motorola you know, t-mobile um nortel like crazy for a long period of time but it was access to the 5g network that was the real issue and when we said no i think that had a huge impact because Huawei, uh, Huawei is essentially what i like to call the digital cornerstone of belt and road it's the eyes and ears in and the communication network with Belton Road, so when Australia said no, I think um Xi Jinping was not happy, <laughs> not happy and um I think he, he's you know and since we pushed back and stuck up for our sovereignty, I think he's uh pretty annoyed
3: i mean you, you heard his feelings he's a he's a sensitive guy. I mean, remember, he gets upset when people compare him to a lovable cartoon character.
1: Right. Right. Absolutely. And then on the pandemic, and, you know, the perspective I bring here is, you know, um, when I was based in Singapore, I spent more than a decade in medical technology, medical devices. You know, I've been in operating rooms all over Asia, including in China. You know, I worked in the infection control space for a while for a Swedish company. And um, during that time, we'd just come out of SARS and MERS. You know, I was speaking to a lot of hospital infection control specialists, WHO people, in Hong Kong and so forth, and they, you know, world class people, and um, so it's been particularly interesting for me watching how the pandemic started unfolding right from the get go because of that experience. And um, you know, what the Prime Minister did was to say, you know, wouldn't it be great to get to the bottom of this, and so it doesn't happen again. And if you compare the way that China responded to SARS versus um, COVID, uh, it was actually more transparent, you know, during SARS. Um, there was a period of time where there was more media freedom and more scrutiny was allowed than under the under the Xi uh, leadership. Well, you the know.
0: WHO was not in China's pocket at the yeah, time. Yeah, I mean, really actually, the hard.
2: WHO kind of forced them to open up a hospital in Beijing where they had been hiding some SARS patients. Like yeah. they were trying to pretend there was no outbreak in Beijing. And then the WHO demanded to inspect this hospital. And so... You know, the there were at the time there are a lot of media reports, like in the Wall Street Journal, about how the WHO's actions really probably saved a lot of lives by arresting the pandemic much sooner. And now, you know, oopsie, holy, whoops. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's yeah. not an oopsie. It's the the CCP then spent, you know, the next decade trying to take over the WHO.
1: Yeah, right. They lobbied, actually lobbied hard for uh, Ted Ross's predecessor, Margaret Chan. She spoke at a uh, Gates Foundation meeting I was at in Jakarta. Uh, but then they really went out on a limb with with, with Tedros. You know, it's the art of art of buying off the corner office, you know. You don't need the whole organization. You just need the corner office, which you can get at a discount. And then you let the Americans pay the big chunk of change for the WHO. <laughs> the guy playing the shots is, you know, doing your bidding for you. It's brilliant. <laughs> They're really good at it.
0: Well, so this kind of goes back to what we were, we were asking earlier, like how, like, clearly – the authoritarian regime is the bad guys why are there Australians who think Australia is the bad guy
1: uh that's a great question one one of um my favorite kind of China experts in, in over here is John Lee and he was born in Malaysia Malaysian Chinese and he was Julie Bishop a couple of foreign ministers ago and, um he was her personal China advisor and he gets super frustrated by the constant criticism of our own country and he wasn't even born here you know, he's more patriotic than most of these people. I think there's some there's some connection between those that have leftish views and giving China a free pass for some reason. And I, I can't quite fathom what it is. But um, I guess some of the other things at play here are the mainstream media is not terribly well equipped to cover China. That's one factor. It's now very hard to get people into China, of course, uh, correspondence, to get. You- their visas approved. And so there's a lot of folks that don't necessarily have China experience that are commentating on China. And I think one of the other factors is what I like to call elder statesman syndrome. Um, you know, which is uh, you know, it's a big meaty world issue, right? And if you're a um, you know, significant person, you're gonna weigh in and have an opinion on it. Even though you might not have any China experience, or you might have been there once or twice and stayed in a five-star hotel in Beijing, Shanghai, or Guangzhou, which is a bit like going on a first date, you know, as opposed to getting married. You know.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, first dates aren't really a good um, barometer. Like as you know, Johnny Depp heard figured <laughs> out with Amber oh Heard. I, so uh, I, I
1: knew I knew you were going to go there. Chris. <laughs>
0: wow i feared you were gonna go Uh, there chris yeah Yeah. it's what the people want apparently yeah
1: Yeah, we
2: should just call this podcast that and see if we can boost the views a little yeah
3: that's a good idea yeah yeah our our listeners will not feel tricked at all
1: no yeah they they won't be angry well just on just on that point chris i love the way you you've called uh china uncensored edutainment because you know talking about china particularly i think it's one of the issues From an academic point of view, it can be pretty dry and boring a lot of the time, you know. One of the reasons I've got involved in, and I had never had any ambition whatsoever or interest to become a journalist or a media person, Um, but, you know, I felt kind of compelled since I came back to Australia, and my my graduate studies and scholarship were paid for by the taxpayer, right? Um, I felt compelled to kind of share my experience and what I knew and, and kind of give back as well you know
0: yeah I mean that's that's great like I never like to me I never understood the, why people would think China news is like dry like it's always been so insane to me right like, it, like yeah. the scripts write themselves well, most of the I time mean, we I think. did
2: start China and censor during like this huge power struggle within the Chinese Communist
1: Party yeah, a there's decade massive ago power struggles
0: they were building artificial islands it's like, like it's
1: all crazy. It's
0: it's, it's all crazy.
1: Yeah, yeah. I love, I love it too. It's um, you know, it's it's a passion, and um, I've been following General Hostility with great interest ah, for yeah. many years. Yeah,
0: I I would say it is more juicy than anything with Amber Heard and Johnny Depp.
1: Right. Well, I used to live walking distance from the big red walls of Zhongnanhai. You know. Oh yeah. And yeah, you know, wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall in there? Sometimes the palace intrigue must be. Uh, uh p- pretty saucy to say the least
0: yeah I mean the the best thing we did was start to compare it to soap operas
1: <laughs> that was fun <laughs> yeah, yeah. That,
3: that was definitely good I mean I I like all the praise for our show Andrew so I mean if you have more <laughs> things you want to say
1: they're nice uh, like the suggestion box I'd like to see um Matt because do a few more um impersonations I love the Trump one <laughs> Don't do the Australian accent.
2: Um, well, I think we've it's already not, it's,
3: it's it's pretty bad. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I Okay, so I accept that. I
2: feel like Matt has three impersonations and we've just rolled out one
3: of them. Wait, I have mm-hmm. I have Trump, I have Australian, which is next. What's the other one?
2: You've done Russian a few times.
3: I have, I have You've done like uh, done
2: you you dubbed Putin a few times.
3: Yeah, well I I do have some some Russian heritage.
2: Yeah, but that doesn't help your accent. No, it really
3: doesn't. That was many generations ago. <laughs> hey the quad
0: or anything Mm. else anything (laughs) else to talk about
2: uh I mean I kind of want to talk about China's medical technology stuff okay yeah I mean Andrew like you said you spent a lot of years doing business in China especially in that sector you know and there's a lot of um you know it's pretty evident that the, the that over the last decade or so, like one of the long term things that China wants to do is to become a leader in biotech and medical uh, in the medical field in general. And, you know, we already see a lot of for right now, it's things like, you know, masks or, you know, alcohol wipes, like kind of not expensive things being made in china but we are becoming more dependent on them how do you see this going are they going to be successful in becoming this biotech giant
0: they want to become the umbrella corporation or company resident evil shelly i've never played it
1: sorry so shelly that's um that's a great question and it's a huge topic because healthcare is um super complex right you know encompasses everything from aged care to you know, infectious diseases and all sorts of things. Um, And it's a controversial subject in every country. Um, But it's interesting, uh, Noel Ferguson um, from Stanford Hoover Institute, who I'm a huge uh, admirer of, he did a series called History um, is is the West History, about the rise of China and the challenge of China to the Western world. And he he put it that um, the Western world has been able to maintain a gap on the rest for the last 500 years, basically since the Portuguese arrived in Macau, because of what he called were five or six killer apps. One of those killer apps was is Western medicine, you know, and how that's evolved over a long, long period of time, and how it's it's cultural. If you look at the rise of East Asia, the Tiger economies beforehand, and they figured out how to industrialize and make an automobile, a good a good car in the space of probably about 25 years. But medicine and healthcare is, um, it's a very complex ecosystem. So for example, in China, where you don't have an independent judiciary, because of that, you don't have a medico-legal system, right? You can't take um, a private hospital or even a state-owned hospital to court. You you know, you're gonna have a hard time taking a drug company to to court and that sort of thing. Um, My last trip to China, uh, late seventeen it was on behalf of um, a Texas company called g Bio. And they make um pods. They're they're essentially biopharmaceutical factories that are made off site and then they look like kind of big shipping containers, but they have the HEPA filters and all the air control and all that stuff. They can all be also be used for um patient isolation. Um and um Pfizer was an early investor in GCON. So Pfizer was able to make its COVID-19 vaccine in half the time, because they ordered these pods and they wheeled them into a shell building. They didn't have to build a new factory. Um, but at that meeting was a, about CRISPR, which is a, a cutting-edge gene editing technology that's used against cancer. But whether it's CRISPR or clinical trials around vaccines, and China has a horrendous legacy issue around vaccines, um, they they jump steps in in the clinical go to market
0: well there was the case where a couple of years ago where the scientists created two crisper human
2: twins it oh, yeah. was supposed
0: to be immune to AIDS or something in
2: China but then he got essentially disavowed by the Chinese government right yeah he, because yeah. it was
0: a scandal
1: he Jin Kui. yeah he was he was he was arrested um because of the scandal actually because that because that scandal created a loss a great loss of face but some um, It's, you know, I've been to a lot of surgical conferences over the years. The guys from mainland China are generally on last, and most people don't hang around too often. Um, There's cancer patients in China that are paying good money to have online consultations with oncologists in the US because of the trust factor. Now, on the equipment side, Shelley, um, you know, when I first went to China in 88, people didn't have fridges and. All these sorts of things I remember visiting a higher factory in Qingdao back in the day and of course they're the number one white goods manufacturer in the world now but um I've also been to the China medical equipment Fair which is just you know in Shenzhen which is just this huge, huge scale thing and um China makes um there's a company called um uh, mindray or mindray out of Shenzhen and they make they make you know they're in a lot of hospitals around the world they make good equipment um, you know, at that trade show, I saw Chinese companies making advanced technology products like MRI. Uh, the companies that weren't, exact, weren't around five years before that. And uh, there's a company based out of Shanghai that recently bid for a contract, with the University of Sydney Medical Center, and that, they're making PET CT. So that's a, that's a pretty advanced technology. The problem is not with the ability to make good equipment. The problem is in the software, i.e. the people skills. And the discipline around um uh, good clinical studies before you take a product to market and i'd I'd also add that if you're a foreign company and you're trying to commercialize medical technology in china like for other uh, sectors in the economy it's difficult but it's particularly difficult i mean I'm, i'm involved with another uh texan company in the medical imaging space um, and it's taken them seven years to get FDA, and it's cost a lot of money. But, you know, the process is challenging because the FDA wants, FDA wants to make sure that before this t- technology is deployed in vivo, i.e. I- out in the real world, um, you know, it works. It's safe and efficacious. And those guardrails, um, as I mentioned, are kind of avoided in, in China, Is this race to catch up or surpass the West, as it were, um, but um, you know this. This is uh, it's it's been you know if you're trying to get a product into through the SFDA, which is the Chinese version of the FDA, they they use that as a way to get their hands on your on your IP on, on your blueprint. So it's a very very tough market, and there's corruption all over the, the uh, Chinese medical system. It's generally a you know pay up front, you jump the queue type of proposition. And doctors there are paid poorly. So they're not they're not incentivized to do anything else in terms you know, in terms of their annual remuneration. I, I did a um I hosted a couple of German surgeons um on a trip to about three or four cities in China at one stage, and they were doing lectures and uh, being involved in a couple of live surgeries and so on. I remember being in Changsha, I think it was, and um I was in the th- I was in the operating room. Uh, and people going in and out of the operating room. People using their mobiles and sort of the operating room. I've never, i never seen anything like it in a Western country. Um, but the, the two German surgeons, good teaching hospital, university in Germany, and they, but they were from the former East Germany, uh, and we we took them uh, to um, uh, Lushan, where which was kind of a summer retreat for Chairman Mao, and they were they were just like, get us the hell out of here. This is the last place we want to be. But I remember being um down in Guangzhou and um we were having dinner with, with one surgeon and he suggested to the two uh German uh professors, he said, you know, we'll use this company's device. This this patient had bilateral hernias. And he said, Look, we'll use this company's device on one of them and we'll use this other company's device on the other. And one of the one of the German surgeons shook his head, out. he said, No, 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 no. He said, We, we don't experiment on, on real patients, you know. So there was um You know, uh, uh, you know, China's got a long way to go before it's going to be able to um, compete and compare with medicine compared to, you know, U.S., U.K. and and other countries. It's got a long way to go.
0: now we know that like because of recent research that China is essentially using its doctors, its surgeons as executioners, harvesting organs of like still living people so this is this is going to be a real problem when the you know the doctors themselves are essentially just tools of the state
2: well I think that's one of the reasons why they're trying to keep the organ harvesting stuff so like they're they're faking organ donation data there's Mm. been research that's shown that like that like the organ donation data follows the quadratic formula like it's like impossible they're
3: they're kind of even lazy about how they fake the data
2: but like the i think that's one of the reasons that like the 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 idea that these hospitals the the you know military hospitals or whatever are doing these uh like essentially killing prisoners of conscience for their organs like they have to keep a lid on that because that's going to blow up their whole you know reputation with what they want to do in terms of like the medical industry and become a leader mm-hmm. and yeah.
0: well I guess the, the point Andrew you're making is that really what uh what makes a country kind of become a superpower isn't just its industrial capabilities but also its medicine 100
1: percent, was... and it's generally one of the last areas of these newly industrialized economies to take off so for example in South Korea Um, 20 years ago the healthcare industry was pretty undeveloped but as the country got richer and when people do get richer they're willing to spend more money and they do spend more money on advanced healthcare so that whole ecosystem sort of goes up although in South Korea there's far too much cosmetic surgery done. I remember being up at um, I think Seoul National University Hospital and one of the neurosurgeons was telling me we can't get young guys to do uh, registrar ships in neurosurgery because they want to go up, down, up up, and do nose jobs and boob jobs because it's so lucrative. Everyone wants everyone wants to have that k pop look, and and um, a lot of people from uh China were going over to South Korea and having that surgery done as well. And in fact, um, I was in Chengdu meeting with a bunch of uh local aesthetic plastic surgeons one time, uh, not not a trip I wanted to make. I, I used to look after a range of products that was called SAM SAM which stood for subcutaneous augmentation material and it was designed for facial and maxillary surgeons in the event of gunshot wounds you know dog attacks car accidents where the face was injured and surgeons needed to do reconstructive surgery but it but these guys were using it off label uh, and not for its intended purpose they were using it for aesthetic surgery and uh, they were quite scrupulous, actually. So I, I recommended to my company at the time to shut that business down. And even though it was quite lucrative financially, they went ahead with that, and we exited that market in Asia to stop the off-label use, which was again quite unethical. You know. Um, so, but I think also back to general hostility for a second. I think one of one of the reasons uh, Xi Jinping is is um, sweating at the moment is because he's put himself into a corner in terms of COVID-19 management. And it's come at a great cost uh, to his um, his position and his power. And it, it's funny, it's the old medical economies, as it were, the UK, the US, that came up with effect, efficacious vaccines in unprecedented time, you know, because of their, their real uh, strength in this space. And China's not been able to uh get have as efficacious vaccines they've not released phase three cl- clinical trial data and so on and so what were the tools in their arsenal well they had to go to lockdowns and so but that's obviously not sustainable even ted ross has been saying that you know he's he's uh, tried to put a bit of space between himself and the chinese uh, regime for obvious reasons but um you know i remember at the start of the pandemic you know, Italy was uh, the only G7 country to sign into to Belt and Road. And she was saying to the Italians at the time, hey, we should include healthcare in Belt and Road, you know. Um, I think she fancies China as a healthcare player. And it's no disrespect to Chinese people. They're fantastic Chinese doctors all around the world. Um, and they've been able to move very quickly in, in good medical technologies, I mentioned. But um, for all of those constraints... Um, in terms of the Chinese system, they come home to roost in the healthcare space in in very powerful ways, and that's why China's not ready to compete like for like against you know um, the countries that have been doing it well for a long time.
2: You know, it's been interesting watching the lockdowns that have been happening lately because there it's not just the lockdown, but it's also kind of like permanent. Um, quarantine hospitals being built, right? Permanent testing stations being built and like constant mass testing of people. And the question people have had about this is like, why are they doing so much testing? Like, why aren't they putting, you know, effort into vaccinating people, even with the, you know, even with the Sino farm vaccines or whatever that are, not as, that are not as good. But I think one of the things is, and this goes back, this is my hunch. I don't have a lot of data to, uh, you know, back this up yet. But I think this goes back to what you were saying, Andrew, about like people, people skills. Um, a lot of the people who are doing the quarantine management in China are migrant workers or kind of like temporary workers. They're not necessarily healthcare professionals, right? Like you can get, they, they're they all wearing those like big white Dabai suits. So like they all kind of look the same. But sure, you can train somebody to, you know, like put up fences. You can train someone to do a nose swab, but like they probably don't have the infrastructure to be able to quickly vaccinate a lot of people because they don't have enough healthcare workers to do it. Like you don't mm-hmm. have to be a healthcare worker to do the mass testing, but probably to like be sticking needles in people, you know, even Chinese people would be like if are you are you, if you're not a nurse, I don't want that, right?
0: Yeah, they don't want some migrant worker yeah. jabbing them. Yeah.
1: Well the the, the, pro- the problem is that um the pandemic has been so politicized in China more than anywhere else. Um, and then the narrative had been written that, hey, you know, we've got this under control early on. You know, we're, we're, the, we're the role model here. Look at the way we've managed the pandemic. You know, learn from us. And of course that's that whole scenario has done a 180 degree turn because, you know, in the West, um we're, we're coming out of the pandemic and we've got on top of it largely through efficacious vaccines and other good measures. But it's funny, I, you know, I used to joke with uh, a friend of mine, an Italian surgeon um, in Singapore um, about, uh, you know, um, infections. And, in fact, those plastic surgeons in Chengdu asked me, you know, how, what's the best way of reducing post-operative infections? And, you know, I, wow. you, you go into an operating room and um, you just see these guys are not practising good aseptic technique. You know, they cut corners. And I joked with my surgeon friend, um you know it's because they can't see they can't see the bugs you know the microorganisms muc- are not visible to the human eye so there's a tendency to cut corners um some countries better than others in handling um post-operative infections and nosocomial infections which are hospital acquired infections than others and it revolves around good discipline essentially um and good aseptic technique but um If you look at what's been going on with COVID management, I mean, it's just frightening. They're doing the opposite of what would be good aseptic technique. And it's crazy. When you think about it, there are some excellent world-class infection control specialists in Hong Kong. And of course they've been completely muzzled because it's been a top down, you must get this um, COVID outbreak under control, which of course with Omicron, which was more transmissible than it's, uh, predecessor variants that's an impossible thing to do so yeah it's been a mismanagement on a on a biblical scale by by xi jinping and his uh and it all it, it all goes back to him he's the guy that you know he's the chief executive he's the guy that makes these decisions and tops down and give these orders so i think he'd be under enormous pressure at the moment
3: well it may be a biblical scale but good thing for china is that they've already had practice rewriting the bible
1: yeah. 100
0: well, well, so speaking of this, um because this does kind of tie back to Australia, the idea that um you know the problem with everything happening in China now is is Xi Jinping. Uh you know, that's something that was really pushed forward by the longer telegram which many people suspect was Kevin Rudd, right? yeah uh who and what was his position he was uh, former, former prime, minister. prime minister of Australia yeah. 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 so I mean if that is it's true and so you you have this kind of um thread going about that you know the problem isn't the CCP it's it's Xi Jinping how much is that really playing out in Australia with you know the likes of Kevin Rudd pushing that
1: yeah Kev, Kev the Rev I call him he's um he's a character I remember going to a lecture he gave when he was shadow opposition uh he was the opposition uh, foreign affairs spokesperson and i was really impressed with him i thought um he came across quite differently as he did in the media at the time and he's a very bright guy and he, he's he's um a good boffin in terms of uh china analysis but um do you, do you guys know what he's up to these days he's head of the asia of society yeah he actually, exactly right. he
3: actually introduced uh the Anthony Blinken China policy speech.
1: Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he's been in that role for a couple of years now and he's paid about a million US a year. Wow. And the Asia Society, the, yeah, the Asia Society is an interesting one because, um, you know, some of the money for the Asia Society comes from people like Ronnie Chan, um, you know, the, hmm. the Hong Kong property tycoon who I've met, uh, had dinner with him in Nanjing. Now, yeah, he's an interesting guy. He is a, he's, a, he's a US citizen but he also has huge uh, business in China. Um, So, and it's also, um, Tong Chi Hua is also, you know, a major sponsor or backer of the Asia Society.
0: Big United Front guy.
1: Well, he was, you know, he was the the first um, chief executive of Hong Kong after the handover. So I think Ronnie Chan, um, I think Ronnie Chan loves America, but I think he's also uh, very proud of China's rise. I mean, Kevin Rudd, I've seen him interview Wang Yi, and he was, he was respectful to the point of being deferential, you know, treating him with uh, with kid gloves, as it were, um, really being the diplomat. And when you contrast Rudd's behaviour uh, in Australia, he has been relentless in his attack on uh, the previous administration, absolutely relentless to the borderline, you know, you can't worry about his mental health. And when he was Prime Minister, he was quite a controversial guy he had a few complete meltdown, like dummy spit meltdowns, you know, uh, when he was on uh, the Australian version of Air Force One over over a sandwich that he was provided or something, something like that. And he famously came out of the uh, Paris climate negotiations, and and there's a famous quote that I can't repeat on air, but he he essentially said that the Chinese delegation had a bunch of some so and so's that had done some, something to us you know i'll leave you to fill in the blanks but you get the idea um so you know he had a reputation for alienating people um he hates news corporation he's always raving on about news corporation even though when he was trying to get elected he was only too willing to work the news corporation um so yeah kevin yeah he's, he's a, a bit of an odd cat let's put it that way uh but i you know he's also been uh you know um going to China with the, the Hank Paulsons of this world, you know, those those kind of guys that want to stay engaged. Um, but he won't be getting... He, I don't think he'll be getting any invitations anytime soon after his uh, comments on Xi Jinping. But, Chris, I think you're right. I mean, Xi Jinping is one guy along the CCP journey, and I don't think uh, that journey is going to... That trajectory is going to change, regardless of who is in power... It may be um, tweaked somewhat in, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the intensity of what they're doing. They may adjust the settings, as it were, but I think the mission will stay the same because of the system. You know, she is uh, particularly Leninist in his approach. Um, but, uh, you know, I would suspect that the system would continue this plenty more where he came from
2: it, what is interesting about things like the longer telegram is that it pretty transparently argues that we should get rid of xi jinping so that like maybe we can get a more normal ccp go back
3: like, like, like john zeman you know, he was a totally normal person <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah no. yeah i think go ahead yeah i think it, i think it all goes back to uh what rush doshi calls the three traumas uh tiananmen uh, the first Gulf War and the collapse of the Soviet Union. So, um, in the heady days of Tiananmen, and as I mentioned, my first trip to Beijing was 88. I was back there in um, 90, so one year after Tiananmen. Um, and I was, I was in the mornings, so I'd study at the Beijing, Gaoji, Guanli, and the high level Carter mm, <laughs> Institute. <the> cadre, yeah. <laughs> which was pretty interesting because I don't know what those guys studied, but they seem to just hang around doing nothing most of the time. And, um, and at night time, the students that were there, you'd hear these uh, beer bottles that were being broken and that was sim- the symbolic around um, Xiaoping little bottles. Mm. And the idea was, you know, you were smashing Deng Xiaoping. <laughs> it, was a, it was a sort of campus protest against the crackdown in Tiananmen. And, oh, wow. um, yeah, back then um, the beer bottles were um, very brittle. <laughs> I know because I did an internship it. But- fosters brewing uh which was an adventure check this out this is the um the uh schizophrenic beer can you see that it's shanghai beer and it's it's fosters on the other side of the can. so and we have a little um Wait, so,
3: so fosters is actually chinese for beer
1: <laughs> <laughs> i had a feeling you would go back to that ad campaign which is you know the australian for beer that's a funny one because um for many, many years, nobody is, uh, in Australia drinks Fosters, you know? Yeah, v- everyone v- drinks VP or yes. Tui's
3: or like, yeah. Uh, I, other stuff,
1: yeah. other stuff, yeah. Yeah, I actually did a branding project for craft Brewery in South Korea a couple of years ago. We ended up calling it Moon Bear. Um, I won an uh, award at the Melbourne Design Awards. So that's a whole separate uh, conversation, a little, a little job I did for some private equity buddies of mine. Uh, we ended up losing control of the business anyway, but that's life. But, yeah, this has even got – this memorial can has even got a little inscription on it, you know, Paul Keating went there and kind of cut the ribbon or whatever when they started. Wow. But the beer beer bottles used to come along uh, the factory and they used to just break after they'd been through, you know, cleaning and heating and all that stuff. Um, They make good beer bottles there now, but that was back in those days. Um, But in the afternoon, I'd go into the BHP office. I was – you know, the world's largest mining company. And back then, um, China was about 2% of its global sales. Japan was about 50% for iron ore. Um, And I'd go out to the Ministry of Metallurgy and Mining and um, I went out to Shogun, you know, the capital steelworks. So, Chris, you mentioned that uh, the ski ramp in the Winter Olympics. Mm -hmm. Well, when I first saw it, I I couldn't understand what part of uh, Beijing that was, but those two big, chimney things yeah they were they were part of shogun
2: oh so oh, uh, open right
1: that yeah they were part of shogun so when you went out there um the shogun i kid you not had 100 000 employees it wow. was like a city yeah it was like a city so um those soes have obviously been um rationalized down or merged or whatever over the years but um you know a year after tenement compared to the year before, eighty eight was kind of the summer of hope you know um people are excited to see foreigners in much of china people have never seen a foreigner before they just look at you and go they just look at you and go hey Lao wai and um you know so you know you know Lao wai Lao wai 86
3: yeah yeah
1: yeah friend of your friend of the show mm-hmm. um i'm kind of i'm kind of Lao wai 66 you know so i'm kind of giving away my age there but um you know uh it's just amazing to look back on those heady days and um and how much it's transferred. In fact, I've known a ton of journalists over the years. Some of them have been my good friends. And uh, on that first trip, I stayed with um, a family friend who was a China correspondent, Robert Thompson, and he's since gone on to become the CEO of News Corp. You know, Um, he was down here in Oz quite recently and put up for dinner, but um, yeah, it was very heady days. A year after Tiananmen, you could still see some tank tracks around And and the BHP company, the company Peugeot, ended up with about six bullet holes in it, and they got it repaired, but they kept one of the bullet holes there just as kind of souvenir, you know. But um, I remember being advised do not get it be in a taxi with a local, uh, particularly after dark. And um, when I when I went back to Beijing after my after Hopkins Nanjing, my studies there. I was. I was. Um, I used to go past. I used to go past um, every day to and from work, but um, you know the atmosphere in '90 versus '88 couldn't have been any more different. There was a sort of you know a, awakening of China, this excitement about opening up to the world again, because it had only been a few years into opening and reform, right? Yeah. And but, yeah. Um, yeah, particularly in Shanghai. Um, I was associated Shanghai with being more welcoming to the outside world, and Beijing being the commercial centre as opposed to the political centre, you look at the waterfront on the Bund and you sort of associate that with prosperity and openness to the outside world and all that sort of stuff. And when I was a little kid growing up, my next-door neighbour, a Eurasian kid, his uh, dad um, was one of those very wealthy family that fled um, Shanghai, um, you know, around 49 or thereabouts, and moved down to Hong Kong. They had a monopoly on paper in Shanghai and um, they were so wealthy that my friend, um, he has photos of his grandparents with um, uh, William Holden and Cary Grant. <laughs> they had a whole building on the peak. So I, I kind of, um, you know, had had some clue about the channel being around Chinese people since I was about five or six years of age, you know. Uh, So connecting all these dots. Um, Have you guys managed to read Desmond Shum's book? Um,
2: Yeah, we had him on.
1: Yeah, We had him on on the
2: show, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I really enjoyed uh, his book. Um, He's two years younger than me, but um, it brought back so many memories, you know. We both uh, were swimmers. We both swam at South China Athletic in Hong Kong. You know, um, he redeveloped the Huadu Hotel site in Beijing, Um, that was his big project. Um, that's where I spent my first night overseas in 1988. Um, you know, he worked with Bob, the late Bob Thalene, of China vest, who was this mercurial American entrepreneur that was getting all these Western consumer products into China. I knew Bob, you know, so reading, reading that book, it just brought back all these memories. Uh, but also, you know, big takeaways is how business gets done in China in the absence of, an independent judiciary in the absence of a legal system that gives uh, people do confidence in business and investors confidence, you know, and not having that there. And of course the CCP has always pushed back against having an independent judiciary has made China, you know, such a difficult place for foreigners to do business for such a long time.
0: So now nothing new to do with Xi Jinping, despite what <laughs> some people no, no, say. No,
1: no, no. no. And, and I think, you know, going back to eighty-eight, eighty-nine, you know, Zhao young, you know, as you know, he went down to Tiananmen Square and he really, it was very emotional. He was pleading with the students uh, to go back to their dorms because at that stage, you know, there'd already been the, um, that bizarre scene with Wurukaji in his pyjamas, you know, lect- lecturing Li uh, Peng. Uh, you know, I remember thinking this is not going to end well and and Zhao was begging these students to go back home because he could see what was coming. And, of course, you know, since that happened, he'd been under virtual house arrest until his death. But I think when Tiananmen happened, um, you know, it really crushed the, the hope of um, China uh, moving in, in a certain way to become more open, more Western, more liberal. And, the, you know, the Hawks have dominated uh, since then. So it's just that she is... A more dominant leader. And that's largely because China has moved through some phases where it was no longer necessary to hang on to hide and bide, you know, hide your strengths and bide your time. There's no, I think probably 2008 is probably a, uh, the year that you'd call the marker year China hosts the Olympics. It's kind of its coming out party. And they started to realize that, you know, they had significant economic heft and power, particularly in manufacturing. You know i think this is one of the things that gives china a lot of um confidence it's a manufacturing powerhouse of a size and a scale that the world has never seen you know i remember one of the reasons i got involved with selling chinese in the in the beginning was you know when i was a little kid everything all the plastic toys and stuff were made in hong kong and in the in the uh 80s they were made in the tiger economies and china was just starting to open up so i thought all that manufacturing is just going to, you know, the, value, the the cheaper stuff is all going to go into China, you know, which of course it did. But, you know, there's a, a documentary, a great documentary on YouTube called The War of the Factories and it's about World War II and how Germany, you know, which was banned under the Treaty of Versailles from having an Air Force, went built one anyway, and how they built up their, their war inventory across, you know, tanks planes and guns and all that sort of stuff. And when World War II broke out, the US, they didn't really have any tanks. You know, they weren't prepared for war. But what happened was the industrial leaders in the US, and there's a similarity here with what happened in the pandemic. My old employee, G Healthcare, started making respirators with Ford, you know, and so they were very nimble in in being able to do that. But at the beginning of World War II, um, the federal government in the US at the time didn't have a great relationship with industry, but it basically gave Detroit carte blanche to go and make the weapons of war and due to the engineering talent in the US it wasn't long before the US war inventories overtook those of Germany and they were making better equipment and much more of it at a scale uh, that was unprecedented and I just wonder if if the, the the scenario that we all fear so much that there's an outbreak of conflict a hot kinetic war between the US and China how the ability of mass manufacture um, would, would, would impact um, that conflict, you know? And, you know, would people in the U.S. be willing to work seven days a week and give up all those other things that they that, that generation did so well? And is China's manufacturing scale and competitiveness, would that be a, a huge factor in, in a conflict uh, that, that makes it very difficult for the West to challenge? I think a lot of this
3: actually depends on people's beliefs in the United States. Like the pandemic should have been the opportunity for the US to just really rethink manufacturing and start onshoring stuff and what we saw over the last 2 years is like some companies moved out of China but most of them ended up going to other Asian countries or Southeast Asia to do manufacturing. Like you know it, it just there wasn't that much of pulling out of China and doing manufacturing in the US. And I think there was still the, the attitude hadn't really changed. Um, mm-hmm. I I think, you know, and, and this is my my hypothesis that during World War II, there was this attitude that like, okay, we're America, like this is our job to, to do this, to defend our, you know, to provide weapons for our allies, eventually for ourselves. And it was just this very like, like we can do it. Uh, but we, we didn't have that attitude over the last two years in America. It was kind of like, Oh, this pandemic sucks! Like, you, know, you don't think I, we have the kind of patriotism? Well, it's no, it's not patriotism. It's like we were we were distracted by issues like oh, like we hate Trump, uh, or like you know oh the vaccine, whatever, or just like oh the you know people were confused about where COVID came from because there was so much propaganda, and just like all this all this confusion. Right. And there wasn't like, you know, and also like we, we happened to have the most controversial president in a long time in office. So that did not help things. Right. He was, it wasn't like a tr- Trump was not a uniting leader. Right. No. And so, no. so you, in, in a, in a, if during the beginning of COVID, you had a rare type of US president who's like really people on all sides are like, you know what, like this is, this is my man or this is my, my president, you know, like, but. We didn't we didn't have that. We didn't have a sense of unity. We didn't have a sense of like what can America do to overcome. And so things were scattered. We we're paying attention to to dumb things and and just like there just wasn't there wasn't that energy for it.
2: I mean, I think also on a practical level, like we saw what happened with manufacturing, you know, N ninety-five masks or surgical masks in the US, right? Where you know a lot of these comp there was one company left in the entire country that made surgical masks in the u.s
3: yeah but even even like in a year into the pandemic like california bought like what three billion dollars worth of masks from china or something it wasn't like, just it's california it's so like dumb.
0: The, the, the biden's administration's spent lots of money buying masks from china because
1: the,
3: the they US were, US cheap. The, were cheap the, the home covid tests were buying like a third of those are from china i mean it's, like it's it's just It's so dumb.
1: Even 3M and, you know, Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing and Mining Company, you know, uh, even its uh, China operation was forbidden from exporting um, PPE back to the US. So they were essentially held hostage by the Chinese government, which is, you know, if you invest in your manufacturer in China, you know, you're operating in that environment. It's important to understand that. You know, uh, a friend of mine ran... um, the nutrition uh, infant nutrition business for Mead Johnson, uh, another U.S. company uh, in China, and took it from about a hundred million to well over a billion in sales. But they got fined. Um, they had to pay a thirty million dollar fine uh, because they were uh, pricing the product too high. They did pretty well out of the fact that some of their local competitors were putting melamine in baby formula. You know, so it was a trusted U.S. operation. And so they probably were able to get away with charging a higher price. Now, in the West, that would be considered, um, you know, normal practice, you know, to increase your profitability, Um, you know, as opposed to what that guy did with the um, AIDS drug, you know, that Martin, whatever his name was, the most hated man in America. (laughs) That was completely unethical. But, um, you know, this is what happens. You get held hostage. And I think Rosemary Gibson has done a fantastic job in in her book China RX, she talks about how the pharmaceutical industry has become so reliant on pre- precursors uh, from China that it's put them in a, a situation where you do have a major national healthcare issue, and you you, you can't get supply, and you know, that becomes a national security issue. So you know the Chinese doctrine is um, unrestricted warfare. It's, it's it's warfare using all sorts of means, you know, lawfare, uh, information, propaganda, health, uh, and, uh, and standards, you know, the way it's been influencing um, the UN to, to shift standards and so on. You know, these are all um, considered fair game tools in the arsenal. We in the West tend to think of warfare as, you um, know, kinetic bang-bang, guns and bombs and all that sort of stuff. I'm not saying China doesn't do that. There's, they're... They're going through the, the largest military modernization ever. Um, but they're using all these other methods as well. You know, they could, they could stop the export of uh, fentanyl and meth precursors if they really wanted to. I mean, they can shut down um, somebody who's uh, uh, tweeting about politics in a heartbeat. But yet these um, precursors magically leave the country uh, and, and show up in the US, and they've shown a willingness to collaborate with uh, Mexican drug cartels to get these poisons into the U.S., knowing full well the damage and destruction they're causing. I
2: had to laugh because in Antony Blinken's speech on China policy, fentanyl was one of the things that he said that we should work with china on oh god to you know curb the production of fentanyl precursors in not china. completely
0: <laughs> not understanding that they are purposefully yeah it, it drug was like, warfare.
2: that was one of the things climate change you know cl- they always talk about climate change yeah, being yeah. somewhere we have to work together but like yeah, the yeah. Fen- yeah. He, he, china he has so much experience with climate
3: change with all of its you know uh, coal factories yeah
2: i mean but like They're the fentanyl good. thing was especially like
3: uh, uh i mean they 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 fundamentally
0: don't get China, but
1: um... I, 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 think, I think Blinken doesn't get it, and that that uh, element of that speech is indicative of that. The, the climate change thing. I mean, John Kerry flew to Tianjin, remember that for a Zoom call with Wang Yi, yeah, in mm-hmm. Tianjin, and not long after that, uh, he met the Taliban in person in Tianjin.
2: Yeah, Wang Yi met oh, the yeah. Taliban.
1: What, what, what does that tell you about China's genuineness about you know working on climate change?
3: I think as long as they can sell us wind turbines and solar panels that they've ripped our technology off to build, then I think it's okay. We can work with them.
1: Yeah, right, right. Um, You know, and and that's not, you know, I was doing some research on CPEC the other day, the China-Pakistan economic corridor, and that is, um, you know, kind of the poster child of uh, Belt and Road. You know, it's by far the biggest engagement in infrastructure in any country. And um, I noted that there were eight coal-fired power stations under that program being built. Um, and, you know, uh, they, nobody's even talking about the coal-fired power stations that China's involved with outside of China. You know, so, look, the takeaway here is, and i have got in trouble for saying that here, because, look, I, I have a bit of a different perspective from a lot of academics and stuff. Uh, you know, when you've been in the trenches of commerce there, and, you know, you've been through seen all this stuff. It shapes your lens, right? Because you've got first-hand experience. Um, you know, I'm not getting in trouble here for saying that I don't think China is genuine about climate change. And I, 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 I hold that for you. I think uh, they see this as, a, as a, an opportunity to leapfrog the US in terms of um, economic heft, you know. And that's why, you know, when, when I talk about um, deadlines like 2060, you know, well, I won't be alive to see that happen, but you know, it's so far out there and it doesn't commit them to anything at all. It's a free reign, which is what they're after.
3: Well, but just because the Chinese Communist Party has lied about everything else, doesn't mean they're lying about their commitment to climate change.
1: So you, you, you're a big hearted guy, Matt. You think yeah. we should give them, give them one more chance? <laughs>
3: no, I, at least at least one more chance, you know? Right. Yeah. No,
2: but maybe. Maybe it's, it's really our fault for polluting so much.
3: Yeah. You know? I mean, look, we we had we had a set centuries to pollute, so now we shouldn't hold a developing country like China to the same standards. Like we have to give them the opportunity to pollute for you know a couple centuries. Uh, otherwise, <laughs> right. it's it's unfair. So we should we should restrict ourselves and and just and and I and I think this is good because it also gives us uh um, american based multinational corporations an opportunity to manufacture stuff uh for cheap in china and not have to worry about all those externalities you know like pollution
1: right um right.
3: so I, I i think it's a great opportunity
1: yeah i mean um i mean the us it, it certainly needs to have a uh a manufacturing heartland reasonably intact if it's going to maintain its um its power and its ability to power project around the world. You can't you can't offshore everything, and um, you're right, Shelley. A lot of this stuff's moved to Vietnam. You know, clothing, textile, and footwear's gone into Bangladesh. Um, some stuff's gone into India, which is not an easy place to do business either. You know, the Apple Apple iPhones are made there now, um, but nothing. None of those things is going to take away the size and scale of what China offers. And you know, they've been very good at negotiating, um, using access to that huge market as a negotiating tool. You know, I was at a, um, a healthcare conference in Hanoi, Vietnam, uh, and it was put on by the uh, Vietnamese health ministry and the US embassy. We had uh, David Shear was the then ambassador to Vietnam. He We went to Hopkins Nanjing. Um, a friend of mine who was government relations for Pfizer was also there, and he stood up and he said to the Vietnamese, look, you know, the Chinese government is very pragmatic and they 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 help us with access to, you know, land and there's various incentives to go in and invest. And, and China's been very good at that, actually. And if you compare them with Vietnam, Vietnam's the size of one province of China. It's nowhere near as attractive, you know, for a company to go in and invest um, because, because it doesn't compare in terms of the market size.
0: Well... Uh, we are almost out of time, but there is there is a, one thing I wanted to kind of talk a little more about, some of your ideas about uh, the Pacific, speaking of World War II. I know you've been talking about this idea of uh, like a Pacific Peace Corps.
1: Yeah. Um, so I, I, it's very hard to compete against China on your own. Certainly, I mean, Australia's the big player in this part of the world. I'm not terribly well-traveled in the Pacific, but... Uh, I was doing a project in Manila in 2016, and a buddy of mine who ran, who's run a dive um, travel agency, I said, "Hey, I wanna, at the end of this project, I want to go. I haven't been diving for a while. Can you recommend a good place? You knew the Philippines well. He suggested I go to Palau. So I went to Palau, and um, it's about oh, maybe 800 miles to the east of the southern part of the Philippines. Um, dive out." And it's kind of in the middle of nowhere, as a lot of these um, Pacific countries are. Palau's an interesting one. It's, um, it's only 18,000 people. The ecosystem there is unique and breathtaking. It's the best diving I've ever done. It's It was mind-blowing, just beautiful, you know. Um, and, you know, China's been pursuing Palau, and Palau has stuck with the current arrangement with Taiwan, although, you know, the Taiwanese used to throw money at these countries too. Palau has a, the capital building in Koror. is um, It's a scale model of the U.S. Capitol, you know, for a, for a country with the size of 18,000 people, and it was paid for by a loan from from uh, Taiwan. And when Ma Ying-jeou became president, came to president Taiwan, he uh, he said, "Oh, we're not doing this anymore. We're not throwing. We're not doing this you know, bribing, bidding thing with with China." And so it stopped. But um, that capital building, they ended up having to kind of evacuate it because it wasn't built for the tropics, and it got mould and everything. It's just, it's uh, it has the the smallest population of any capital in the world. But um, I think with Palau, when it, when I landed, there was a plane load from mainland China that got in there before me, and um, th- there was about seven charter flights arriving uh, a week. And so what I saw was this this culture clash bearing in mind that a lot of people in mainland China have never been overseas before. Um, so it was all a brave new world for them. And, of course, Xi Jinping just clipped their wings and clipped their passports as well. Um, so it makes it very, very difficult to leave China now. Um, but but I think the Palinese government got a bit of a fright because they realised, uh, you know, that the amount of kind of human traffic, as it were, has the, it has the ability to change these small states almost overnight the 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 changes happens at breathtaking speed and what I could sort of pick up was that the locals were starting to feel like kind of second-class citizens in their own country you know and while I was there I met some some U.S. uh, Navy engineers just in in their civvies and I got, got chatting to them and they're there on a kind of rotational basis but Palau has a thing called the compact of free association with the U.S. they use the U.S. dollar you know, there's uh, bank branches from Bank of Hawaii and stuff like that. But the Compact of Free Association means that the US military is responsible for its defence if Palau puts its hand up and says, we need you. Um, the new leader in that country has gone out and asked uh, the US to set up a military base there. It said, please, if you'd like to, you know, come and set up a military base here. So I think, and it's interesting, that the, the most outspoken um, member state of the Pacific Forum was the president of Micronesia, who wrote this letter to the Federated States of Micronesia, wrote to all the members of the Pacific Forum, really strong letter, an excerpt of which I I read out on Sky News the other day, uh, warning um, the other states, you know, basically a caveat emptor, you know, understand what you could be potentially getting into here. And so, you know, China's been good at building visible infrastructure, some of it white elephant stuff that's not really needed, Again, that's not fit for purpose. Um, and Australia's been involved in the region for a long time on the softer skills and things like healthcare and disaster management and stuff. We don't pay bribes uh, to buy off the corner office, which is something that China does do. I'll say it right now, they they do that. I mean, there's a Harvard paper comparing uh the way SOEs go about things and how they communicate with the mafia. You know, so it's I'm not the only one that's saying that. But I think this is a case where... You know, Cleo Pascal has written some great stuff about um, how different countries um, can perform different roles. So, you know, it might be Australia's good in healthcare. It might be that uh, Japan's good at fisheries management. I'm making it up as I go here. But I think we need all hands on deck. I think we need the French, who have some skin in the game in the Pacific, you know, the Americans, obviously. And I think this has been a bit of a wake-up call for the US as well. You know, Kurt Campbell flew to um Uh, to meet with the Solomons uh, leaders. Um, You know, uh, Caroline Kennedy has been confirmed as the new US ambassador to Australia. And, of course, her father was rescued in Guadalcanal. And, you know, I mentioned that uh, cemetery in in, um, the Philippines. We shouldn't forget the sacrifice. You know, you stand in that cemetery, you see all these white crosses, and you think this was a young guy, uh, you know, 20-something, that died so far from home you know, uh, fighting to liberate these territories. We shouldn't forget that. You know, we should remember that. Um, you know, these countries are sovereign, uh, sovereign countries and we need to respect that. But that sovereignty has kind of red tinge to it. You know, and it's it's the blood of all the people that sacrificed, that gave their lives to make sure these countries are free. And I would be rem- reminding uh, the leader of the Solomons if I was there, of that history. And we shouldn't forget it. Um, so it's good to see that um you know people's memories are being jogged uh, by some of this stuff we don't want to go through that 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 uh, experience again
2: mm. so the peace Corps idea is that like all these countries would you know what come together send people there to help the pacific nations or
1: yeah yeah I, I think you could do something and you could call it the Pacific Peace Corps if you like mm-hmm. and um it might be something like a you know, the Tom Cruise bomber jacket with the flags on it. <laughs> um, but it would be the flags of participating countries, like-minded countries uh, that are in these uh, uh, countries doing good and making a contribution. I mean, there's a fair criticism of, um, of, of you know, um, countries in the, re- the major economies in the region. You now, I mentioned the US, Australia as well. We all could have done better and we all and um, need to, to lift our game and show up. We need uh, shoes on the ground, perhaps rather than boots on the ground. Hmm. And um, we need to do better. I mean, Papua New Guinea um, is the, the biggest country in the region. They hosted APEC a couple of years ago. Um, Xi Jinping attended. Um, and they built some white elephant infrastructure there. But then Australia, New Zealand and the US said, well, we're going to provide you the electricity grid. We're going to build our electricity grid because most people in PNG don't have access to electricity. What's happened in the last two years since then? Nothing. Nothing's been done. So if we don't deliver on what we say we're going to do, it it destroys credibility, you know. Um, And people need to get out into these markets, into these countries more. And, um, And we talk about the Pacific family here in Australia, but if we're a family, you know, we need more, we need to have more islanders coming here to study and work I mean, more young Australians and others going out and you know spending spending a year in a hospital if they're training and that kind of thing. And they not. There ought to be incentives and coordination around that.
0: It makes a lot of sense. It's kind of like what you were saying about um, medicine being a, a a factor of superpower. That you know, it doesn't matter if China builds like some skyscraper that will sit empty, in palau or any pacific island nations like if the, if the western world can actually get together and give things that are actually needed that will be that will go much further than you know china's empty infrastructure promises that come with crippling debt and like resource extraction on a huge level and making people in these countries seventh-class citizens
1: yeah. yeah well i mean um in in um the, in kirbass they uh have a thing called i think it's called Pay the Pelican Island's uh, marine sanctuary, and it contains the world's largest stocks of tuna or tuna, um, 700,000 tonne a year. Now, that's been protected from being harvested up until a year or two, and it's no coincidence in my view that that China's been putting pressure on to get access to that area. I mean, it's, you know, half the size of Western Europe. It's a vast area of ocean. One of the critical things going forward is going to be monitoring fishing and that's another area that's an area where the quad is perhaps going to deliver its first chat tangible capability which will be to um monitor and map uh fishing fleets in the region because china is by far and away the world's largest illegal fisher and it's gone around the world say off Ghana or off somalia somalia has a long indian ocean coast chinese government paid cash to leadership there for fishing rights and so but the Pacific Islanders are not stupid. You know, they—they—they—they're understanding what's going on, and I think even in the Solomon Islands, where Sogavare is a very controversial figure, they're not going to get—you uh, know—they're not going to get it all their way. The, the, the pushback on the regional agreement, which we've seen in the last couple of days, it's a loss of face for Wangi. It's—it's um, a setback for China's agenda in the Blue Pacific. They're not going to win all the battles. They don't have all the aces and um, we need to get our, our groove on and get our game going again and we need to show up and we need to compete
0: well thank you very much for joining us today and talking about some of the ways that we can compete with china
1: good fun chris good, good to see you all and I'll, I'll i'll see you next time on general hostility
0: <laughs> absolutely we'll still be making plenty of those i have a
1: feeling
2: i think it's, uh, it's gonna r- ramp up in the next few months probably definitely yeah i,
1: I think so
0: yeah
1: see you guys thanks a lot all right thanks a lot see you cheers
0: thank you for watching this episode of china unscripted once again i'm chris chapel i'm Shelley john and i'm matt ganesha we'll talk to you next time